Hi, I'm Ron Coleman, a partner in the Dillon Law Group, social media legend and free speech enthusiast. When I started the Coleman Nation podcast in the spring of 2021, its focus was on free expression and censorship on the internet. But as important as that subject is to me, which is very important, I felt hemmed in in the podcast. I wanted to spend more time talking to the interesting people I've met in my legal and free speech work without feeling a need to have them all make the same point. So I culminated the first series of the podcast and have started the second series. I hope you'll enjoy these conversations as much as I have recording them. Hello, culminators. Today, we're going to speak with Jeremy Tate, who shares with me an interest in education reform in the United States. You have to be in favor. If you're listening to this podcast, you have to be someone who recognizes the very, very serious societal and cultural and economic need for education reform in this country. We need a lot of work. Uh, I have been an advocate, in fact, of abandoning the public schools. I don't know if Jeremy shares as radical a view as I do. I think it's, I think, frankly, it's a poisonous and unredeemable. But what what Jeremy does, and let me just briefly, before uh, I, I promised him that I, that I would let him, or I actually dumped on him the opportunity to uh, introduce himself. But first of all, here, here, here's the handsome looking man that we will be talking with. And here is the Twitter page where he and I first got to know each other. He's a uh, father of six, his most important job, of course. And what I think you'll find fascinating is there, so there are two things on here. He's got a, got a podcast because he is an American. Everyone has a podcast. <laughs> and it's called the Anchored Podcast, and I like that name and what it alludes to. And it is anchored by the classic learning test, which Jeremy's going to tell us all about. This is a beautiful, uh, and you know, listen, if you're if you if you're an old timey kind of guy like like me, you're going to just love this. You're going to eat this stuff up, Jeremy. Thanks for joining us. A real pleasure to, to uh, talk to you in person. Uncle, what a, what an honor. Thank you. Let me stop sharing. So so. Tell us the story. How do you how, how did you get to this point from being you know what, what, you didn't I did you did you where'd you go to school? Sure, you know, Ron. I grew up. Mom was a teacher. Uh, dad was a federal agent, uh, and you know, I grew up uh, not super engaged uh, in education, uh, but had had a, a pretty dramatic conversion uh, to Christianity, kind of going into college. Started reading a lot on my own, and then it was really in seminary uh, that I had kind of a, an epiphany. Uh, I, it was not the Let focus. me take a step back. Yeah. Where'd you go to college? Where'd you go to college? Sure. Went to uh, Louisiana State University, actually. I almost never asked this question, but it seems to me yeah. that this is gonna, that this is part of the story here. Huh? So, so the religious conversion took place before college? Before. During college? Before. Going into senior year in high school. Yeah. Did you grow up Catholic, or was it you came completely out of? No, we grew up. We grew up, uh, but I, I don't think I internalized the faith. It wasn't kind of my own until senior year. Probably to, to no fault of my parents, just just kind of my own. Woke up to the reality of, of God really going into my senior year in high in in high school. Went to, to LSU and then went to seminary after that, and it was really in seminary. I'd already had a couple of years uh, teaching in New York City's public school system. Oh, that opened the fear of God into you. <laughs> yeah, that's right. That's right. Uh, and I, I could talk about that a lot. I mean, it was in some ways it was a, uh, I'll never forget some of the things I, I witnessed in, in New York City public school system. Uh, but Ron, what I realized in seminary was that the the telos or the purpose of education 
for almost every generation, as far back as we can go, was radically different than what we're doing now in mainstream K-12. Essentially, every previous generation had fundamentally been going after moral formation or character development. It wasn't just part of it. It was the whole point uh, of education, right? Uh, and now it's it's not even part of it. It's just kind of this empty credentialing, learning things. Nobody can define it real well. And if you, if you look at these, uh, you know, your American history textbook, at least the ones we used to use, <laughs> And, and you would see a picture of, of a horn book that they used to use in pre-colonial days or in early colonial days, rather, in the United States or certainly certainly in, in Europe. They would inevitably have moral lessons in them. And people today look at these little um, aphorisms and, you know, lessons that would be that were used to teach people how to read and think, oh, well, you see the church, the church controlled education and they completely missed the point these were in these were inevitably sayings that had very little to do with received um you know um with revelation with with stories from the bible they had to do with the sort of things you know that that even the essentially secular ben franklin uh, you know would encapsulate in in poor richard's almanac early to bed early to rise type stuff yeah and you're saying that that is just not, we, we, we were so intimidated by the so-called, the erection of the so-called wall between um, church and state. That's a great way to put it. And it's interesting to think, Ron, about what is a well-educated person? What does a well-educated person look like, right? How would you describe that kind of person? And it should be marked with a curiosity, uh, a love for knowledge. It should also be marked by character traits, uh, such as, I believe, generosity, uh, empathy, compassion, uh, the virtues, you know, that, that societies uh, agreed on for thousands of years, the four cardinal virtues, right? Uh, this education focused on character development, on the cultivation of virtue, this was what gave birth to America in many ways. This is 100%, 100% of our founders received a classical education. For them, the point of studying history, think about Washington's influence, the way he was influenced by Cincinnatus, right? The way, the reason they studied history was to inspire heroic virtues. It's almost the exact opposite now in mainstream high schools, right? They, they study history to learn that America sucks or something. I, I mean, we couldn't have gone further from what we were doing in previous generations. Well, so, so let me pick, play devil's advocate here on that point. Let's say that we have a more sophisticated um, historical understanding today of the ambiguities of the moral ambiguities of our history in a way that, to be fair, might not have been addressed and wouldn't have been addressed in, say, 1940s or 50s education. But we're going to be more squarely upfront about social history. Uh, you know, about just how exploitative the Industrial Revolution was and about slavery and about Jim Crow. We're going to be, you know, let's let's just say for argument's sake that there was a certain idealization of history that took place in previous generations, and we're not going to do that anymore. Give, 
that you would agree that that would be that, a that, development, right? Absolutely, I, that'd be a, a valid point. And you know, right, right now I'm finishing a book that's had a great influence on me, and, and it's the coddling of the American mind. And the, the whole focus of the book it talks about kind of three great untruths, but the last great untruth is that you know the life is a battle between good and and evil people, right? And if you commit kind of one mort, mortal sin, what you know. Many of America's founders, right? Jefferson, Washington, they were slave owners, right? Were they also, right, men of virtue who did great things uh, for, you know, the founding and the future of the republic? Yes, it can be both and. And we've lost, I think, young people, we, we, we have failed to pass down that ability to nuance and to say, you know, both of these things can actually be true, right? The founders went from completely whitewashing and not seeing their real sins to only seeing their real sins. That's where we've fallen off. And is there, is, I mean, my observation has been over the, you know, I've, I've been far too involved. You know, you say you weren't all that motivated about education. I wasn't either, but in a different sense, I wasn't motivated by being educated. Uh, I was, I was interested in knowing things, but not, not my, my wife was an expert at getting A's. Hmm. I had a football player, you know, GPA in college, but I remember so much of what I learned because I wasn't really that interested in the test taking process. I was interested hmm. in, 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 in the learning, but I do remember that there, one thing I've observed in years of being politically engaged is that there doesn't ever seem to be a limiting principle. In other words, you might say, okay, let's be more morally honest now. Let's stop. Let's center. It's it's too far to, let's call it the right. It's not necessarily a fair use of the term, but it's been too far to the right for a century. Now let's move it towards the center. Mm. What inevitably happens on any topic, whether it's education or, you know, civil rights or so-called tolerance or sexual mores, it never stops at the center. First of all, the center is redefined yep. and everyone has to move all the way over to the left. Do you think there's any way that that can be changed or do, or, or do you, or do you mm. agree with me that education has to be taken completely out of the hands of the people who are running it now and the only, and that private education is, is the answer? Sure. I, I wish I had a better answer than I, I, I don't know. I'm not optimistic. Uh, about the future of, of, of publicly funded. I mean, in, in many ways, you, people have got to understand what we're doing in mainstream K-12, it is an experiment, right? It is an experiment. It's kind of the grand history of education that really goes back. I, I would mark the beginnings of kind of as education in many ways to Deuteronomy, right? In the Old Testament, where, where you know, there's instructions to to write these commands on your doorpost, to, 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 to teach them to your children. Uh, that is education, Right. And it's almost impossible to find any system of education that doesn't have an external moral authority. And so in mainstream K-12, there is not one right now, right? And so the whole thing becomes subject to the latest political wins, you know, whatever happens to be the new fad, right? Uh, just in, in the past 40 years, we've gone from, uh, you know, technology is going to solve all the problems. That's kind of where we're at now. Uh, before that, it was all standards or before that, it was the open classrooms are going to solve all the problems. We just keep trying to reinvent this, this kind of like new thing that's going to solve all education. Education didn't change for centuries and centuries. A good education 
go back to to, to Plato and to to the Republic. A good education didn't change for two thousand years, and now what we're considering a good education uh, is completely, in some ways, disconnected from what what they were doing previously. Well, let's talk about the difference between that. This is a very common problem, and I, I, I'm I am fortunate to have gone to what was once one of the great universities of the world for my education, which was Princeton University at the time. In the 80s, it, it was a phenomenal place to be a student. And for, there was a great opportunity for free inquiry and free discussion. At that at Princeton, you, you learned what the best case was for a liberal education, small l, liberal education. Inevitably, what the, the nature of the discussion that I see when I say this, I mean basically on Twitter, is people don't understand the, the value of A, of, of a liberal education, and, and that's what a classical education, which I'm going to ask you more about, essentially is, and training. Because when you first said, well, where is, where do we see that there's ever a successful educational system that doesn't, that isn't premised on moral character? So what popped into my head is, well, we'll, we'll look at the, at the way Soviet children and Chinese children uh, in the communist uh, in China are educated. They run rings around uh, us, uh, you know, on skills and on knowledge. And perhaps there's a character component to it. It's a terrible character component. Maybe it is, maybe it's not. I don't, I don't really know. But the difference between teaching people how to do stuff, teaching skills, and teaching the kind of education, the character formation uh, that you're talking about, I think are different things. It's true, but right now it's not either one, right? In mainstream in, the, in, the, in America, exactly. It's, it's neither one. You don't graduate with a vocational skill. You don't graduate with with the ability to go do do carpentry or HVAC. I think that would be great, right? And, yeah, and, and every time yeah. one of the worst political trends that we've seen in the last twenty or thirty years is. College for everyone. Lots of college. All everyone has to be in college, no matter sure. how lacking you are in secondary education. College, college, college. Which of course, is there anything less meaningful right now than an American college degree? Besides yeah, yeah. High school degree. Well, and I, I would push back a bit. I, I do think that there are, you know, the, the, the Hillsdales and the Thomas Aquinas. Where man, I, I see that on an application for an employee. And I'm like, holy smokes, you know, we're going to interview this person. They went to Hillsdale College or they went to Thomas Aquinas, something like that. Because you know that they've had a serious education in a way that they've been formed in all the right ways. But you're right. I actually view many applica applicants now, it, it, it can be a liability where they went to college. Because, you know, they spent four years doing nothing but partying and ingesting bad ideas. Yeah, yes. And and, and some and, and other things, too, that we won't have to mention on, the, on, on this uh, podcast yeah. because we're both family men. I want to sort of take, I want to, we could talk about this for hours, but I didn't really give you an opportunity to A, to finish your story and B, to tell us what you're doing now. You had said sure, you, got to, yeah. you got to seminary. That's where we left. And then my ADHD brain said, oh no, here's another, a different shiny light interrupted me. Yeah. Yeah. So, so Ron, what I do now is it's an alternative to the SAT and ACT. And so that, that may sound very strange, very boring, right? The SAT and ACT have a fascinating uh, history and a fascinating influence. The influence is far greater than almost anybody suspects in terms of their power over American education. The SAT is owned by the college board. 
College Board has tentacles in every part of American education. Uh, they they own the AP classes, the AP curriculum, the AP testing, the SAT, the PSAT, Accuplacer, uh, going all the way down to the PSAT and the PSAT 7-8 now. The tests, and this is one of the concepts that almost every teacher will agree on, tests end up driving curriculum, all right? So what is what gets tested ends up getting taught. And if you put, if every teacher, if every school district knows that on the most important test their kids are ever going to take, they're going to be reading passages from John Locke. They're going to be reading passages from Frederick Douglass, maybe Thomas Aquinas. That's going to fundamentally change the, what they're actually doing in the classroom as well. So we launched a CLT, the classic learning test, as an alternative to the college board, as an alternative to the PSAT, to the SAT, to the ACT. Uh, out of this conviction that the test will end up driving the curriculum as well. So what do students see when they actually take it? Yeah, they are reading passages from Ben Franklin. They are reading passages from Plato's Republic. Uh, this is These are the kind of texts we think uh, is really important for students to be able to, to know and comprehend. And who's looking at these tests? Who's accepting these tests? I mean, uh, you mentioned the College Board. For all its power and influence, the current trend now is to move away from any any conceivable objective criterion, no matter how poor of a criterion, sure. in order yeah. to be as subjective and discriminatory as possible and not be held accountable for it. So, so major schools and major professional and graduate schools are moving away from the college board um, um, scores. How does, how does that... So, so I asked you two questions. Sure. Who yeah. Accepting the classical learning test, other than the colleges that you've met, like, is, are, are we forming a completely different track? Is that really what's going to happen? Sure. Yeah. So th there's a few different currents happening at the same time. So one of them, test optional, absolutely true. We have gone from 40% of colleges being test optional to about 92% of colleges being test optional right now. And wow. that's born that's born out of a number of things. A lot of this happened during COVID. Uh, you know, after the George Floyd incident, Congressman Bowman stood on the floor of the House and said that standardized testing is a pillar of systematic racism in America. Uh, and so colleges, if they don't want to be one thing, it's called racist. So they very quickly went away. But that's not the only current that's happening. There's also a massive explosion of homeschooling happening. And a lot of homeschoolers, they make fun of the whole grading system completely. Uh, and so colleges are realizing that they need some kind of an external metric uh, because homeschoolers cluster at the very top. And they actually cluster, unfortunately, towards the bottom a little bit as well, right? A lot of homeschoolers are off the charts, but some, maybe mom and dad thought they did a great job. And they actually didn't do a very good job at all. And so an external metric becomes increasingly important. So there's a tension with the test optional movement and the homeschooling movement. So we just saw MIT go back to requiring a test. Purdue went back to requiring a test. Uh, I, I know of a few that will be announcing in March or April that are going back to requiring a test. So the pendulum is going to swing back a little bit, but nowhere near like it was before. All right, but now who is, who are, is it, as again, is it is it the sort of schools that you were mentioning are the ones that, you know, what, what you call on your website partner colleges, are those are the ones that are looking, they says over 200 colleges and universities accept CLT scores. So basically that's, you know, sort of a, um, an alternative universe, right? To the, you know, I mean, these seem to be overwhelmingly 
you're featuring these particular a Baptist college, a a Catholic college, and believe me, if I had to send my children to a to one of these colleges or Princeton University, it would be one of these colleges. Believe wow. me. Wow. Um, okay. That's, I mean, that's, that's, that's a no-brainer. That's a yeah. no-brainer. Yes. Yeah, so the CLT is actually the preferred test at a number of colleges now. So more than 200 accepted, but, but, but universities like Ave Maria University, uh, even Hillsdale College in Michigan, Grove City, uh, generally that, that sliver that's going to be your more educationally traditional and conservative. Uh, typically, they don't just accept the CLT, but more and more, they actually prefer it as their preferred assessment uh, as well. Because it actually, I mean, it, it makes sense, right, that a college would have an entrance exam that reflects the kind of education they're offering at the college, rather than an entrance exam that's completely, I mean, the new SAT, and that's one of the things we haven't talked about yet, Ron, the new SAT is not the test that you took and did very, very well on in the, in the 1980s. It's a completely different test. There are no analogies. There's no logic questions. It has been so watered down and so diluted. And it also, when you took it, it was still considered an aptitude test. It was not intended to measure what kids learned in the classroom. It was intended to measure cognitive ability. And now they have said that that's completely unfair. They've gone away from aptitude testing 100%. David Coleman, a name you may know, who's the head of the college board, he's actually the grand architect behind the Common Core Standards. Uh, he was the one who took the, 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 the SAT and aligned it with the Common Core in 2015, which in many ways was a catalyst uh, to us launching CLT because traditional families, homeschooling families, uh, families at these, these growing Catholic schools, they said, we didn't sign on to this. We don't like Common Core. The math is all kinds of goofy. Nobody signed up for this. Uh, and and that, that's how they're using these tests as a lever to drive uh, Common Core and this particular kind of education that I would describe as secular, uh, secular progressive mainstream education they're using assessment to push it on everyone. Now, I'm going to make an observation before I actually, I just, you're talking about the when I took the SATs. The SAT for me was the most progressive possible phenomenon. I came from a family of, my, my mother was an immigrant. My father was an orphan. Neither of them went to college. Oh. That's one of the differences between Michelle Obama, my classmate, and me, was that she came from a relatively privileged background. Hmm. Uh, whereas I was just another Jewish white guy from the suburbs of New Jersey, which is just about the most impossible profile to get into Princeton with. But I had a very good GPA, and I did well on this, on this aptitude test. And that said to Princeton, this guy can handle the work, and he's got, you know, wow. other, I was, you know, I was, it, so it propelled me from a basically one and a half generation American experience into what's deemed as a sort of a social elite and certainly you know credential elite, which an opportunity that's now being taken away from people like me uh, or like I was at the, at the time, um, and basically you know there. I mean, it's a depressing thought to think that that people can't, that people with talent. I mean, here's the problem: we 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 are we have a problem with the recognition of talent. Although although your test is not about CLT is not about aptitude, right? 
Well, what CLT is doing is we're saying we're splitting the difference. We actually retained some of the, the elements of aptitude testing. Yes, there are analogies. Yes, there are logic questions. That, that That's important, right? Because if you're not going to have aptitude testing, then you're left with doing what's called achievement testing. Achievement testing is very prescriptive. It's saying we're testing you on these particular standards, this body of knowledge, which is what both the SAT and ACT they're both now common core aligned public school achievement tests. CLT is it's a very simple concept, right? We're, we're, we're testing your ability to read and comprehend the best of what has been thought and said throughout history. That's what we're doing on the verbal side. On the math side, it actually looks a lot like the SAT back in the 80s or 90s before the test became wacky. So then this enables me to, to segue back to the second point that I wanted to ask you about, which is that the analogies and logic, okay, that that tells you that's about that's what we call critical thinking. And I had yeah. the privilege of not only getting a bachelor's degree in economics, which I have subsequently learned is a great discipline among the liberal arts disciplines for learning critical thinking and applying applying paradigms to test hypotheses outside of the sciences. Um, but then going to law school and having some exposure to the Socratic method, which also is excellent for that. Now we're, we're, we're devaluing those things. At what point does the academy, and maybe this is what you're talking about with MIT and Purdue, realize these people can't cut it. These people, because what you see all the time, which is the quality of discourse, certainly in social media, is so wretched. So mm. unbelievably, because people cannot analogize. Yeah. Like they, they, they cannot follow a, a well, lot of... Yep. But but there, there, there's good news, though, Ron, and, and, and CLT is a small part, I would say, of a, of a much larger, rapidly growing movement, an explosive movement that a lot of people call the classical renewal movement uh, or, the, or the recovery movement in education. And what this is, it's a movement going back to traditional education. M most of education has been informed by the, the ed schools. It has been informed by uh, a new progressive kind of pedagogy that really as well as the existence yeah. of the Department of Education, which yes. came into being only shortly before I began college and did yeah. not yet have the, the effect that it would ultimately end up ultimately end up having. But what, what a disaster! Yeah, but, but you you may have been a student of Robbie George. Were you at Princeton? He got there right after I did. Uh, okay, right after I left, so I did not have the opportunity. I I, I had him on the podcast, uh, but okay. I didn't. Have Opportunity to uh, to be a student. No. You know, he, he was just saying on Twitter the other day how much how impressed he is with the young people coming out of these classical schools. And look, and it's everywhere. You know, there's a renaissance happening in the Jewish community. There's a renaissance happening at Catholic schools. On the Catholic side, we close a hundred schools a year. Yes, that's true. But about but but may, maybe that many are more launch. And the ones that launch, they they are they're daily mass kind of schools. They're learning Latin. Uh, it is a traditional, classical kind of education. Th this is the future, and it's happening rapidly. A mass exodus is happening from the public schools, and they're going towards these traditional options. So you are a committed Catholic. I'm an Orthodox Jew. It's very easy for us to talk about the value of, as I said, old-timey education, old-time morality, um, and old-time values. What do we do about the vast secular mass of Americans, given that we're not going to convince them, you know, in one or two years to, or maybe even 10 or 15 or their whole lives to take religion more seriously. There, there's a crisis of faith that is, that 
no podcast can could resolve it. And I tried it with Michael Knowles, and he didn't get it done either. Um, so, given that we that we're not gonna that's that's unlikely to happen, is there a way to make parents feel comfortable with the idea of classical education without given given that it is so redolent of religion of sectarianism? Mm. Sure. Yeah. And I'll, I'll credit Mark Bauerline for this, a good friend who you've probably had on the podcast, but if not, certainly have Mark Bauerline over at First Things on the pod. He's fantastic. But, but one of the comments Mark makes about understanding, you know, the, the new Gen Z is that they are profoundly, in many ways, religious, uh, that essentially what wokeism is, is a new religion that that understands the world in very much good and evil terms. They're good. They're evil. Uh, you know, of course, Donald Trump being, you know, the, the manifestation of kind of the ultimate evil, the way that that is is processed. Uh, and so in some ways, that is because there has been a void, right, of of meaning. You know, people are made, I believe, I and mean, I'm sure you believe as an Orthodox Jew, we're, we're made for meaning, we're made for truth, we're made for purpose. And if if the genuine article is not given to young people, then they're going to embrace something else, right? They're going to embrace a counterfeit, and that that's what I think we're we're seeing right now happen with this kind of new radical ideology. I mean, I, the, I guess the problem is that uh, you know, just you mentioned that, and it just so it just so happens that I this uh, this meme got found its way into my timeline. Uh, that that's that's where we are this sort of manic this crazy manichaeism manichaeism yeah but but it's not even as if you know in manichaeism at at least the universe is divided into good and bad and in the woke world it's not even divided you know Mm -hmm. i mean it's everyone's bad except people with a very very narrow uh you know positions on many, many things. But do people recognize that? Okay, I mean, what could because what is what what we see, what the playbook has been for the left in the last few years is to delegitimize and even criminalize uh, dissent and non uh, non compliance with with orthodoxy. Yeah. And, And it works on a very large scale because they've, mm. they've had so much help from the educational establishment, from the universities, from corporations, from the media, so that people who don't, who have not had the opportunity to learn how to think deeply. Yeah. Well, and I, I, Ron, I, I want to really recommend to your listeners, go, go get, you know, uh, John Hyde's book, The Coddling of the American Mind. I mean, it, yeah, it no. is really helpful in understanding what has happened just since 2013. Essentially, that's when the iPhone social media crew arrived on campus, uh, you know, as new freshmen and their inability. And in many ways, what they cover in The Coddling of the American Mind is not a battle between left and right on conservative campuses. It's a battle between the new left and the old guard liberal left and the old guard i mean think about just berkeley in 1964 berkeley becomes the epicenter of the free speech movement on college campuses right fast forward uh berkeley becomes the epicenter of the 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 movement to shut down free speech with milo yiannopoulos in 2017 right uh, and you have a lot of those professors who went from students in the 60s to professors now and they're saying what is it? This is not liberalism. Liberalism 
embraces the free and open exchange of ideas. And so one of the things that, that has to change is the language we're using, right? To keep calling left-wing authoritarians liberal is not helping anyone. And, and I think conservatives need to call spades a, a spade a spade. Yeah, I mean, Eric Smith uh, was very, I, I had him as a guest. Um, you know, he, he teaches rhetoric and he, he was involved in, in the Heterodox Academy. Uh, and and he focuses on this this uh, Marxian approach of taking ownership of language, uh, changing definitions on people who then continue to use words that they thought once. I mean, you know, as a Jew, one of, one of the most phenomenal uh, examples of that that has happened in my lifetime is the, the is the ch the change in the definition of the of the word apartheid. Hmm to mean something that it absolutely did not mean yeah. and the, the and the meaning was customized to mean the policy of the state of israel i mean that's all yeah. it means but it yeah. still it still retains that power jeremy there's so much we could talk about what are you guys at the clt what besides getting more adoption of the test besides getting you know helping yeah. to get, spreading the message is, is there an, is there a, Another click, can we, can we take this to 11? Sure, yeah, <laughs> yeah, absolutely. So so testing is not just college entrance. That's one component of it. And again, we're seeing a lot of schools go away from using tests as a college entrance. A lot of them still do tie testing to scholarships or to even placement. But most schools also use tests for other reasons as well, especially just tracking internal progress. And you know, one of the, the comments I wanted to make earlier is, is where does this animosity towards standardized testing come from. And it's interesting to me that most of the animosity to standardized testing comes from the sector where it's the, the students are doing the very worst. And that are a lot of the mainstream schools. And the, this analogy I use is, is kind of looking in the mirror. And if you if you, you know, look in the mirror and you don't like what you see, you could go to the gym and hit the weights and change the diet and try to change what you see, or you could just destroy the mirror, right? And in many ways, like that's what we're doing with like, we don't like what the standardized tests show us, which is failure on a massive level. And so instead of saying we should make some changes and, and buckle up, uh, the, the solution is that the tests are racist, the tests themselves are the problems, and we should just get rid of standardized testing altogether. So, so the racism, CLT, yeah. Racism. Okay. I mean, so this is all about race, isn't it? This is all, you know, that white, this is about white culture. You're what you call classic culture is dead white men. And you and you're trying to to renormalize the ancient tradition of patriarchal domination of culture and to delegitimize the ability of minorities and women and people of other sexes that they make up to participate in, you know, in the bounty of society. I, I, it's an asinine, I, I put it all together in one sentence, right? But <laughs> is, is there is there a strategy other than just, no, sit down and listen to me and let me explain to you why these are time-tested ideas that are valuable? Is there, again, a, a richer 22nd, 21st century way to, to answer that criticism? Yeah, yeah, there is, absolutely. And, and I, I spent 10 years in the public school arena and, and this is the reality that nobody's talking about. You know, we, we talked a lot about the, the achievement gap when I was in mainstream schools, especially in New York City. 
And you know what the biggest achievement gap is in American education? It's the gap between homeschooled Black families and public publicly educated Black students. Just on reading skills alone, uh, there's a 40 percentage point difference uh, with, with Black homeschool family students outperforming their public school peers, counterparts, right? Uh, and so, yeah, I mean, th th this is traditional education works. It's education uh, of the whole person and it's it's cross demographics. I mean, we're seeing the biggest growth of, of homeschooling has actually come in the black community in the Latino community, because this is where these are groups that have been failed tremendously by the establishment, by mainstream education. People are, are embracing new options. I mean, isn't it also the case that, you know, I mentioned the schools are realizing that they're they're, they're working with students that can't do the work. I mean, if you're MIT, for God's sake, I mean, I couldn't have gotten into MIT. I mean, I had a respectable math score, but I wasn't MIT, and I couldn't. Have, and if I had, I would have been out in two months. Um, you have to cut it there. But these are the elite. These are super elite schools. Let's let's force our way past the four year college experience, whatever it may look like. When people get into the world of the economic world. And they don't and they don't have critical thinking skills. And I have this discussion with David Latt, actually, uh, you know, the, the distinguished commentator on on law and the legal profession. And, you know, he was of the opinion that in the legal profession, wokeism had no future because at the end of the day, you need to be able to get in front of get up in front of a judge and actually think and argue. Um, uh, both sides of an issue. You have to have a dialectic, you have to have the dialectical ability that that is being absolutely removed from modern education. But I'm not sure that he's right because what, what we see is that there are all kinds of people making progress in organizations, both commercial and professional, who can't get it done, but who nonetheless are still being elevated because of, what is it, ESI, uh, you know, goals. And I mean, ultimately, I mean, I, I will tell you that I, my wife tells me about speaking to someone in, uh, in an investment bank or, or in a financial services organization saying, we've pretty much given up trying to, to hire people at this point. Because we there simply aren't, we can't get people who can who can who can do this work anymore. What's the feedback? mechanism at which point we realize that what is it I, maybe it's just a complete lack of of, of national competitiveness yeah I, I think part of the secret sauce at clt has actually been i mean we're, we're about 60 percent of our employees have gone to one of three colleges that's hillsdale college in michigan st john's college in annapolis where there are no majors it's a great books education all they're doing is they're deep diving into the Western canon, and, the, and and it's it's not right or left, but that that is what they do there. And Patrick Henry College, Patrick Henry College was actually founded by Homeschool Legal Defense. Ninety five percent of their students were homeschooled K twelve. Uh, they actually outperformed both Princeton and Yale on uh, the PSAT right now, uh, the LSAT right now, uh, and so. That, that is, I think that there's going to be a competitive advantage, Ron, to answer your question, for companies that are hiring students that objectively have had a great education. 
Uh, I mean, employers are all over Hillsdale campus. They're all over Grove City campus. They're all over Thomas Aquinas, University of Dallas, uh, because this kind of education is becoming very rare and hard to find. And especially at a startup like CLT, they say, hey, you know, we, we how do we do X? And I say, hey, we haven't we've never seen that problem before. You got to figure something out. You take one of these young people with this kind of education and it's 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 very different than uh and I think you'll find you'll find it interesting. And I'm, you know, when I was in law school, there were always a handful of guys who came entirely out of the yeshiva system, unlike me, you know, went to a regular college, who did who who got into Columbia, and maybe it would be a handful who, who went to, to Harvard, and they were known to be very successful, even though they had very little exposure to, uh, to, to you know what we call language arts, so not a, not a very necessarily strong very English, but the critical thinking ability and the diligence was baked in very, very deeply. Now, 40 years later, there is always a, a very success, significant um, contingent at Harvard Law School and all the top law schools of guys coming out of the major yeshivas with no bachelor's degrees at all. They're not even playing you know, the Bachelor of Religious Study games uh, anymore. <laughs> Everyone knows that the guys who do well in the LSAT coming out of these backgrounds, know what to do in law school. And they tend to be extremely successful in the profession as well. So that's the feedback is that the, these people with these kinds of, of non-institutional educations are simply going to rise to the top because they're going to be better. Yeah, yeah, I, I think, and I don't want to take a shot as a Princeton alum there, but you know, in many ways, this concept of, of just selling credentialism uh, apart from a serious education in the things that matter, eventually it is going to collapse, you know, and I am less and less. And I, I, I think I speak for many employers out there where you see a degree from what may have been a very impressive institution 20 years ago. And it's a lot less impressive right now because, you, you know, it's I, I mean, these are often students that have never encountered, I mean, think about, I, I know economics is a bit different where you have, uh, I believe it's about one out of every four economics professors identifies as a conservative, but for something like psychology, it's one out of every 17. And so a lot of these students, they've never encountered anyone who is not part of the, the, the left-wing echo chamber, right? And they don't know how to process it. They don't know how to deal with it. You haven't had, if you haven't encountered any viewpoint diversity, you don't have a serious education. And what's, you know, what's disappointing is also that faculty members who I, you know, I don't want to name the name of the person I'm thinking of, but, I, you know, I had a very good relationship, a close personal relationship with one of my professors at Princeton, which was one of the great things about Princeton. You could do that. Um, who I thought of as a real, who was obviously always liberal, as the term used to be met, but who I thought was always a really fair broker. And I remember speaking to him around election time and he is, you know, asking him, you really think Joe Biden is a guy? He says, oh no, he has a childhood stutter. I, I, I like a, 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 an abandonment of the critical faculties that even the previous generation had in order to conform with, with, with you know, with, with political orthodoxy. It's very, it's very distressing. Jeremy, we could definitely do this and maybe we'll have to do it again. Uh, for, for hours. I'm so grateful that we had the discussion that we did in the DMs and Twitter um, and th that it led to this interview. Send me the link, by the way, to that article. Uh, or I mean, you didn't say there was an article. You said that something happened, but that means there must have been an article about about, about the, how the graduates from Pat, was it Patrick Henry? 
Patrick Henry College, yeah. Patrick Henry College outscored the Princeton and Yale um, kids, if I may use the term, uh, on, on the LSATs. That would be something I would love to share. Yeah, we'd love that. Ron, thanks a ton for the invite. Thanks for uh, what you're doing. It's an honor to, to be a guest. Thank you. My pleasure. Thanks so much. Have a great weekend and a happy new year. You too. Hey, thank you for listening to the Coleman Nation podcast. Don't forget to subscribe on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast app. If you like the show, please rate it five stars and leave a review. For more information, please visit the show's website at coleman-nation.com. That's coleman-nation.com. Or you can visit my blog at likelihoodofconfusion.com. Join us next time on the Coleman Nation podcast and have a great day. Hey.